Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 123. Which has a lovely ring to it. Yes, and it's going to take you longer to say each one now. It really is. Welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. Crime. Thrillers. Suspense. And mysteries. Welcome along to the show. Now this week we have a wonderful guest. We do. Someone, Abby Rutherford. Yes. Abby, uh, it's funny. I first started talking to Abby uh, about six months ago and I said, you should come on the podcast. You absolutely need to come on the podcast. And we booked it in then. And, and then it suddenly came up last week and I thought, oh, excellent. We're talking to Abby. Yeah, she's lovely. Yeah. Abby is an editor and proofreader and joins us from her home in Sunderland with uh, interruptions from Thorin the Corgi. Just one little. Um, yeah. Uh, Edible inter- interruption. Yeah, no, very sweet. <laughs> and uh, that, that was a terrific interview. Well, as you know, this show is about, uh, we describe what it's like to run a small publisher, we as do. indeed we are. And uh, we also deal with publishing news, which we'll get into right away. Yes. So you found a couple of news stories this week, haven't you? I did, you? yeah. And, and um, the, the, the stories, they kind of interrelate a little bit, but... There's another thing that we're going to be doing a little bit later, which is taking you to the uh, London podcast show. Not literally. No, but I was there this week, so that, that's going to be a, a feature to come as well. But one of the concerns in recent months for us, and indeed for all publishers, is the pressure on prices and increasingly the cost of publishing, particularly paperbacks, has become, well, I mean, it's gone up 50%, 60% in some cases – and so there is a need to, I'm afraid, adjust prices on books. And recently we were saying how it's going to take one of the big five to actually sort of step forward and mm. make the move. And we're waiting for one of them to blink. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and it's, you, you, you're telling me that one of them sort of has. Yeah, well, uh, sort of, yes. Uh, HarperCollins have uh, broken silence on this issue. And this is Brian Murray, who is the CEO of HarperCollins, and he's also the president of HarperCollins. And he was speaking uh, at, uh, I believe it was uh, part of London Book Fair. Oh, um, so it's actually a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Um, so he, but this is this has been you know not been picked up until now, uh, which is that uh, the prices of books have not moved over the past ten years. They have not kept up with the CPI, that's the Consumer mm. Price Index. Many of our distributors point this out to us all the time because our distributors operate on such thin margins. Their costs have been going up and they've been operating on a thin margin because of the prices of our books. They're really feeling the squeeze. 
And then he said, Murray said that uh, the relative value of a book stands out amongst many entertainment choices. They are tremendous value per minute, per hour, he said. <laughs> I like that. It's true. <laughs> We've seen that the prices have started to move that needed to move with the kinds of paper increases, the freight increases, the supply chain costs. Big double-digit increases have happened. When you look at these increases in fuel and energy and labour, everything has gone up and the book prices need to adjust to offset some of that. I think we're seeing that in the marketplace and I think it's been delayed and is overdue for some of those changes. Well, uh, I haven't noticed book prices going up necessarily. I think what's been interesting, I mean, yes, they have to, to, to a small degree, but I think what's been happening if you look at the price of traditionally pi- priced, uh, sorry, traditionally published books mm. on Amazon, then they've gone up, so they're being held at a higher rate than normal. Um, and I think ebooks have gone up again from yeah. traditional publishers, unless it's a backlist title. And so I think that you know they did at one point start moving into the ninety nine p one ninety nine two ninety nine territory of the independent sector. But they, I've seen a lot of them gone up, and in fact, some ebooks, new ebooks, are the same price as the the paperbacks again, which used to be a, a more of a regular yeah. occurrence. Yeah, but another thing has just occurred to me, and it doesn't really apply to us, but the the traditional way to publish is hardback first, paperback nine months later, um, and then ebook around the same time. And I have noticed that the price of hardbacks has definitely gone up. Yes. And I think that's because they know if you're a dedic- really dedicated fan and your favourite author publishes a new book in hardback first, you will buy the hardback. And your decision won't be based on price so much as people buying the paperbacks and the e-books. Yeah. And I so think- you're sort of, the publisher is then absorbing the extra costs through hardback sales. Could be. You're mm. right. Yeah, poss- quite possibly. Well, uh, this follows an email that arrived in our inbox, and we didn't talk about this last week. Um, it came in about 10 days ago, I guess. Um, but we didn't talk about it last week because we were dominated by Crime Fest uh, and the death of Martin Amos. But we had an email from Kindle Direct Publishing, KDP, i.e. Amazon, which starts with this. Since launching KDP print books in 2016, we've enjoyed helping you publish and sell your books around the world. During this time, we've kept our printing fees the same, despite increasing costs of materials and labour over the past six years. But on June the 20th, 2023, we're changing our fees to better align with the day's cost to print books. We have not taken this decision lightly and have reduced printing costs where possible. So this will lead to an increase in the fixed cost of all paperback and hardcover books to cover the higher cost of material suppliers and labour, A new fixed and per-page cost for paperback and hardcover books with large trim sizes to cover the additional costs of print of these books and a decrease in the per-page cost for certain colour ink print books ordered from some marketplaces. And then there's there's a link to a table. So, again, uh, print on demand through Amazon is going to be more expensive. And... We have already been in a position with some of the books that we print with Ingram Spark of having to put up their list prices because we would actually be making a loss on every print. And they don't let you do that. You, no. you are forced to put your prices up. Our standard price for most of our paperbacks is nine ninety nine, depending on the size of the book. Some yes. of them are a little less because they're not as big. But and some are more because they are yeah, they, big Yeah, they, they consume more paper. 
the general thing i mean we're still waiting for the big publishers who can still command massive print runs especially for the supermarkets where you know you can pick up a book for a fiver uh no problem at all um that is still to come but there is no question that we are going to have to review all of our prices in the light of these changes there's just no two ways around it yeah and actually mentioning ebooks I, we are sort of thinking about reviewing the prices of ebooks well we have been yeah i mean we launched last week um our, our latest book yes the bad neighbor by jenny ensor and we launched it at 99p which is a first for us to actually launch a book at a reduced rate yeah it's been it's been yes the first time we've done that and it, you know the excitement and actually uh copies sold has been quite good i think i'm very encouraged by yeah so far yeah it has it has definitely generated more interest and we've shifted more copies as a result now the the thing is if you launch at 99p you only get 30 percent royalty rate so the actual return on a lot of sales is not very much no. um but you know it's 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 certainly uh, an approach taken by our uh, sort of rivals in um in our sort of sphere of mm-hmm. commercial independently published crime fiction they they often launch at 99p well i think they do for almost every book don't they yes they do pretty yeah. much so this has been an, an interesting thing we'll look at the data as it comes in over the next couple of weeks but we are considering also it's national crime reading month coming up in june yes. so we're only a couple of days away from that and uh, we will um, we are considering dropping the price of some of our ebooks to 99p as part of a sort of promotion yeah, so for, to, to mark the month. There will be some deals in June on Hobet Books, so yeah, watch this just, space. Yes, and for the authors listening to that, we will be in touch <laughs> <laughs> for the ones we think we should do the uh, the deals on and uh, ask your your uh, your advice on. Well, it. they might have had their email by the time this goes live. <laughs> You're looking at me because I'm going to be writing the said email. And, uh, yes, it may well have arrived in your inbox. So uh, we'll, we'll look forward to that. So those are the two uh, indications of, of pressure on, on prices. Um, now, I mean, there are other big issues that we always talk about on this show. AI is, is another. But before we go into the discussion of AI, let's yeah. go to the, the podcast show. And, and I'll explain. I went down to the Business Design Centre in Islington, which is another of those old sort of Victorian um, sort of market trading halls, which has been converted. So around the outside, it's a bit like Olympia, but smaller. Around the outside, uh, there are offices by, you know, architects, designers. uh, There's places where you can buy, you know, designer bricks, or uh, you can see a showroom full of Scandinavian, you know, kitchenware or whatever. But within the middle, there's a big mezzanine floor, which is the main show floor. And there were several theatre spaces as well. And so this was the home for the podcast show, which is the world's biggest expo for podcast makers. Really? In yeah. London? Yeah. Oh. And they had, um, so the, the organisers say they had 10,000 visitors over the two days. Well, uh, 9,999 plus you. Yes. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll take you, I mean, I'll, I'll just introduce it. I mean, I, I just did a quick walk and talk. Uh, while I was there, just to give you a flavour of what the London Podcast Show was all about. I just want to give you a little flavour as to what it's like to come to one of these big trade fairs. Now, I'm sure many of you have been to one. This one is actually in North London at the uh, Business Centre in Islington, and it is a huge Victorian hall. Uh, I can't remember what it's 
previous purpose was, but it's got three floors and the mezzanine is the main area for the show. This is the podcast show 2023, which you don't have to look at many media uh, outlets to know that is the biggest growing thing in media at the moment. And indeed, with 123 episodes of the Hobcast, including the one that we're recording, uh, you know, we've been part of that scene for over two years. It's, um, it's been an interesting experience. It's overwhelming, the number of people here. There are thousands upon thousands of people, uh, many of them dressed much like me. Shabby casual, uh, very creative casual, I would say. The rucksacks are out in abundance. And ahead of me, I've got the Sky News stand and the, the rival BBC Sound stand. And in fact, uh, one of my old colleagues is on the platform at the moment. A chap called John Manell, who's head of World Service Podcast, who grabbed me earlier. It's been very strange for me because there are an awful lot of people that I have worked with over my broadcasting career that I have bumped into. Uh, I don't want to do too much name dropping. Of course I do. I'll do some name dropping. So the head of BBC Sounds, Jonathan Wall, we used to work together 30 years ago at Devon Air Radio in Devon. He is now the head of BBC Sounds and uh, a very important person indeed. And I've also bumped into someone I was at college with, called Lindley Gooden, who is a brilliant producer and uh, filmmaker. So it was lovely to speak to him. Then I've bumped into various other people from parts of my uh, broadcasting history. In fact, I just look up, and there's another one I can recognise who used to be a fellow assistant editor at BBC Sport. In fact, there are a lot of refugees from BBC Sport here who've set up publishing and podcasting companies. And then you've got all these different stalls, a lot of them offering new microphone equipment for podcasting or one-stop podcasting solutions for businesses. Then there are other platforms which everyone's competing here to get as many podcasts on their platform as possible and i've just been to a session with spotify most of which i didn't understand because it was in business speak californian style it was uh, gibberish really and uh, very much pitched at the ceos in the audience rather than the people actually making podcasts uh, and actually i ought to mention that about it was absolutely packed theatre at the start. It was about half empty by the end as people just got bored and left. So uh, note to Spotify, change the message a little. But it has been uh, interesting to see the energy behind podcasting at the moment. And clearly the Hopcast is part of that. We set it up, Rebecca and I, with the aim of essentially broadening people's understanding of how publishing works and to talk about the issues that we face day to day as well as obviously shining a light on authors, editors and the people in the publishing industry uh, which I think we do very successfully but one thing is very clear we might need to make our episode shorter because everyone's talking about getting to under half an hour which seems very short to me you can't really have a proper conversation in that time I don't think um, so uh, we are sticking to the uh, hour-ish format as it stands but there are plenty of other things I've picked up here that we'll be working on to strengthen our offer, not least changing who actually publishes our podcast for us, and uh, that's one of the key things that uh, I take away from it. But you know, here's another example of someone I used to work with, one of my broadcast assistants from I don't know, ten years ago. Uh, he was at the bottom rung. He's now the managing director of Goalhanger Podcasts, that makes the rest is history and the rest is politics, the biggest podcasting company in the co- in the country, and. His co-founder is none other than Gary Lineker. 
So uh, he has moved up in the world. Clever guy, always knew he was going to make it. But uh, 10 years ago, I was ordering t- TV graphics from him. And now look at him. So uh, it's been an interesting environment. It's not one I feel particularly comfortable in. Uh, this amount of noise, this amount of people, especially when you come from the rural quiet of Staffordshire for a day trip like this. But nonetheless, it is important to uh, sense where things are going and adjust accordingly. So I hope uh, this very brief description of what's going on at the podcast show has been a benefit. It was a very odd experience bumping into people I've worked with over the... I mean, I've, done, I've been in the audio industry for 30 years and I met people from all parts of that history of mine so you're saying it was a bit like a this is your life exactly Uh, uh, yeah uh, it is i think i'm not sure i didn't say that on the on the tape but but yeah it was a bit like this is your life you know you thought you'd never see them again you rather hope you didn't um here's so and so but no actually one or two people um i was very pleased to see and i was as i say uh during that tape mentioning jack davenport who again was my broadcast assistant some 10 years ago and is now the managing director of the biggest podcast company in the country with um the rest is history the rest is politics leadership and we we have made some ways of making you talk the four big hit podcasts they have we should pitch the rest is publishing (laughs) (laughs) the rest is absolute nonsense no Um, no (laughs) no you're right uh perhaps we should but um yeah, it's 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 definitely a growth industry. Um, some of the trends that people were talking about with the impact of AI. I mean, I went to this session, and I mentioned it on the tape, but, but run by Spotify, which Jack appeared on. But I have to say, it, you know, the the lady from from Spotify just talked Californian business nonsense and lost the audience. I have never seen more people trying to cram in to a, to a, an auditorium in my life. It was a crush. But I've never seen so many people leave so early on when they got bored and hacked off at the way it was being pitched. It was basically an opportunity for a big uh, tech company like Spotify to show off just how powerful they are. And it did not not go down well in the room. And honestly, there were people leaving in clumps, 10, 12 at a time, every 30 seconds. I've never seen anything like it. Quite wow. extraordinary, and she tried to laugh it off, but actually she missed she misread the room totally. Um, you know, didn't say anything offensive. It just was a question of, you know, we went there, we were pitched a thing which would tell us about the things that are coming down the line, which we needed to know about, and it was all about their advertising um, models mm. and not about how it's going to benefit the people who make stuff. So that was a misjudgment. Uh, but otherwise, um, we have made some changes to the podcast. First of all, I've moved platforms. We have been with Podbean. We're now with Acast as of this week. So fingers crossed everything goes smoothly. Yeah. And this this week, I know at the end of each show, we say you can find our show notes. We're going to have show notes. Does that include the front and end bits? Yes. So if I say Obogobolopolis or something like that. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to <laughs> Otter AI, who uh, we've uh, talked about on the show before, in the context of a transcription, well, I've started using them as an experiment, and it was fantastic. Okay, it made a mess. You know, so you said artisan sausages during the interview, <laughs> which you will hear in a moment, but it came out with autism sausages. Yes. So you have to go through it with a fine tooth comb and, and figure out where it's completely messed up. But it it's ninety percent accurate, which 
you know, judged against something like uh, Dragon um, dictation from Nuance is far better mm. than, than I've experienced before. So we're going to subscribe to Ot AI and to transcribe our interviews and the show um, so that we've got the, the, the words down and then I can put all the links in to all the bits we refer to and that will really uh, enhance the experience. Elevate. And one of the things I've got to do retrospectively is go through our interviews and transcribe those. But as it only allows you to do 10 a month, it'll take us a, a few months <laughs> to do that. But we'll from here on in, we will have show notes yeah, attached it, to the show. Yeah, because there's one podcast a month, so that's six six back ones you can do. A week, one a week. A week, sorry. Yes. So lots of um, interesting perspectives um, around podcasting, but we're extremely grateful for all of you who listen and uh, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from, as I say every week. It really makes a huge difference, but we are trying to grow. So uh, if there's anybody you think might be interested in listening to us, by all means, <laughs> recommend it. Uh, the more we get, the more chance we've got of uh, making a, a you know a couple of quid on the side from <laughs> what we do anyway but we, we, we love doing it exactly uh the other story that i wanted to touch on oh the ai ai so but, your so favorite subject well it is at the moment and you know you well, might nothing wrong with that because it's 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 becoming like almost weekly there's more almost eye-popping to i hate that phrase but you know what i mean eye-popping mm. news about what ai can do or yeah, what absolutely. people are using well, it for i mean you know i've just said I've, i'm using a, an ai system for the first time for transcription and i have to say i'm impressed yeah very impressed with the the the, the offer but i'm a little alarmed by this next story which is in the bookseller again <laughs> text generating ai claims writer's block could soon be a thing of the past for young authors hmm. that's the headline so text generating ai creativity engine claims that writer's block could soon be a thing of the past for young authors. The app uses the digested archives of children's authors, including former children's laureate Michael Rosen, Valerie Bloom and John Agard, to drive young writers' imaginations. The young person starts writing a story and then takes turns writing with the AI. The project is the collaboration between Newcastle University's Humanities Research Institute and Seven Stories, the National Centre for Children's Books, which is in Newcastle, which holds the author's archives. It was created by Newcastle University research software engineers Dr. Tiago Souza Garcia and Dr. Catherine Garside. Garcia said, It doesn't matter how old you are. Every time you see the app continuing your story in a way that makes sense but is at the same time unexpected, it's like magic. Well, um, I don't know... I mean, they're going to be offering this over half term at Newcastle City Library, where they're going to encourage young people to come in. And it was also supported by the English Association and the Turing Institute. So there's two there's two things that have just come to mind. Mm. Um, one is that so they're offering this over half term that it might actually draw more people in who wouldn't normally if it just said short story writing workshop for children or whatever mm. or writing workshop for children, they might have been too scared. Or, or imposter syndrome kicking in. But if it says, you know, interesting experiment using AI, they might think, actually, I'll give that a go. They might. Um, but, you know, when I first mentioned this story to you this morning, you went, no, 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 you can't, because children's imaginations, you know, that's what we're supposed to be working here. To actually 
prompt them along or to fill in the gaps. So that's what I mean by two things. So the other thing is is my sort of negativity towards it, thinking there are so many imaginative ways you can do, you can use to encourage people to get creative when they're not feeling creative, human ways. Mm. Well, it's certainly going to be controversial. Um, though I think Seven Stories is a really good thing as, a, as an organisation. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's fantastic. And, um, you know, one of the sort of jewels in Newcastle's crown in my, in my book. But I think that this... Look, I suppose the thing is, is that we've either got to be consistent in our approach to AI. In, you know, I've already started flirting with it in various ways to try and enhance the way that we operate. And part of that is obviously what I'm doing with Otter to transcribe future episodes of the show and build the show notes in a fraction of the time it would have taken otherwise, which we just didn't wouldn't have time because it would take well, hours and hours. It's funny you say that because right at the beginning yeah, I we, tried to subscribe. Did. It was um, Alison Morgan's interview, so it was it was episode number two, and I spent two hours doing about five minutes, and it it wasn't pleasant either. It was really hard. No, no, it's very very. Uh, particular skill and what i'll just explain how it works in the sense that yes you get the transcript it takes about 10 minutes for i mean we're talking about a this week's interview with abby which you're about to hear was a 40 minute interview it took about nine to ten minutes to process Mm. and then you can actually play the audio as you look at the text and the cursor goes across little blobs you know so that it you know each word is highlighted as it's as it's said and then you can check, stop the, the when it, when you see a mistake, you can go in and alter it. It's also, once you've started entering who's speaking, mm. it then recognises that oh, person. Oh, it then goes on. That's good. That's so good. it started, it, it used its AI skills to, 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 to pick up on who was speaking. Yeah. And so sometimes we're talking across each other quite a bit. And it gradually got better and better at seeing that it was me saying something you know <laughs> like oh yes that's uh, that's very wise or something like that and 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 breaking it up accordingly so the app, other application of clearly um and this is something that we've talked about with rachel mclean because she she dictates her books and then gets somebody to hum, a human to transcribe i tried that with nuance which is the recognized this is dragon um dictation which is the the number one program that's done this over the years and i found it just hopeless because the problem with it was it it needed you to say things like full stop period yeah full stop semicolon uh, page break (laughs) open brackets all that sort of thing as an author that's quite hard because you're flowing what i found with otter was that it 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 noticed if my inflection said it was a question it put a question mark in it was extraordinary in that regard but also you don't need to you don't really need semicolons and and dashes and stuff. no 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 you don't but (laughs) but but the, the you know the i found that you know dragon misread words quite a lot and then just gave you a lump of text which you then break up into paragraphs <laughs> or you had to say those things and your mind is so conscious of saying you know full stop period you know page break hyphen la 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 it just created a, a, a massive just a slab of of incorrect text in my book whereas this has been a revelation so there am i saying i'm talking up um a, you know a paid program uh for a tenner a month or whatever it is uh as a, as a positive thing from AI. And indeed, I am looking for audio solutions, which allow me to edit audio books much quicker if there's a way of doing that and finds, you know, the various versions, you know, the mistakes 
and, and sorts them out or can compare the audio against the text that you put in to the PDF, there are systems that are starting to do that. That's amazing because then I can highlight the bits where I've misread a word yes. and redo it. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I hate the thought of it replacing all creativity and being synthesized as human creativity. But at the same time, if it allows me to do it quicker, just like word processing did, just like the Mac did or drag and drop and creating art through digital things, that's fine. Well, I think surely. what you're basically saying then is it's good as a tool to aid what you're already doing, but you don't want to use it as a replacement for creativity. No. No, but then... You could argue what they're doing in Newcastle. Oh, that, is it, yeah. It's an enhancement. That's what their angle is saying. We're not replacing creativity, but we're saying it sounds like you are. Yeah, it, that's a fuzzy it's a, area. It's a fuzzy area, which is a great opportunity to bring in <laughs> our interview with Abby Rutherford. she has who, a fuzzy dog. <laughs> she does, and she lives just down the road from Newcastle. Maybe she'll be mounting placards because she's um, not that keen on the AI revolution not least oh you can understand why because it is gradually replacing some of the functions of certainly proofreading it'll get better at doing that and indeed some would argue copy editing mm. although she makes a very good case for why a human needs to be involved in that process so it's a real pleasure to speak to abby rutherford here on the podcast book show we do like to work around the different aspects of publishing we do indeed and it's been high time we've talked to a lot of authors recently but it's been high time we go to somebody back on the cold face exactly what i was gonna say the cold face uh and that's no pun because we're speaking to somebody abby rutherford who is based in sunderland where of course coal was king for many many years um but uh it's such a pleasure to speak to you thank you for joining us thank you for having me it's nice to be here and to get to actually speak to you after hearing the voices yeah yeah you have you have i'm afraid you get the, the weird brains down at this end of the line but uh thank you for joining us and um we we ought to put in context so you are an editor both fiction and non-fiction uh particularly specializing in crime which is fantastic when you get a manuscript sent to you what are your feelings as you approach it because <laughs> No, I, I ask this sincerely because this is the sort of thing I do when I'm reading, you know, submissions is, mm-hmm. you know, because you are committing, if you've taken on the manuscript, you're committing quite a lot of your life and quite an intense period trying to get the work mm-hmm. done. Um, what are your things when you first start reading the first few pages? Do you, do you, do you go through a range of emotions or uh, are you trying to anticipate what this is going to be like? Um. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, you, you normally you would ask, if somebody gets in touch with you, you'd ask them to send you a sample. Sometimes it's quite clear from the offset, like, no disrespect, but writing isn't, I mean, I'm not a writer myself, but writing isn't something that you can just bang out a draft and then everything's perfect and then you send it off to somebody and they'll make it wonderful. And I think you need to go through processes of it and I think you need to do some work on it yourself first before you get it to the point, especially if you're going straight for copy editing. Um, so I will advise, I would never take something on. I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously we're in a cost of living crisis. We all want to make money. You know, it's a business at the end of the day, but if something's not ready, I will say it's not ready and I'll send it back because I'm, I, I don't want to feel like I'm ripping anybody off basically, which is what I kind of feel like I'd be doing. 
if I took something on that was in such a state. Um, but generally, I think if it's, there's always that, there's that sense of excitement. You know, if they send kind of like a rough synopsis of what it's about, and if it's something like a psychological thriller or, you know, one of the sort of genres that I really enjoy doing, then there is a real sense of excitement. And if it's an author you've not worked with before, kind of getting to know them and their writing style and, you know, how they tell a story. So it's always exciting, I think, to get a new one come through, definitely. And then obviously I've got, there are clients who you work with on a regular basis and you you really enjoy working on their work. And then you literally can't wait if it's a series of books. I know recently I've worked on J.M. Simpson's. um, It's a third in the, the Castleby series. And... The way, I mean, I'm not going to give any, but yeah, it's like, oh my God, read that, loved it. And absolute pleasure to work on, although I was proofreading that one, not editing it. And it's like, oh, I can't wait for the next one, you know? So there's that, always that bit of excitement, kind of both ways, really. Excitement because you don't know what you're going to get and excitement because, you know, if you work with somebody, it's probably going to be a cracking read. Yeah. And in fact, we've had her on the podcast, haven't we? That's Jo. Yep. <laughs> yeah we have we have and you know it is a yeah they're great stories uh it's interesting though isn't it when when you start getting into it um into a manuscript and and trying to I don't know it always takes me four or five pages before I start getting into the flow and sometimes I have to go back over it I'm sure you do anyway with an edit but just to to really see whether yeah. you know I had picked up the flow and understood the style and you know the the stuff that I was I was perhaps missing because I think for all readers, uh, you know, the brain can play tricks a little bit, um, especially mm. if you just come from one author to another very very quickly, which is sometimes the problem I have when I'm reading manuscripts because I'll probably read five or six yeah. in a row, and uh, I'm still feeling a legacy from the last one. Is that something that you have to sort of try and uh, do? You get better at doing that, or is it, is it something you have to sort of filter? think you get better at it if it's a regular client you kind of and you've worked on the stuff before you're very familiar by that point with their sorry their um style excuse me sorry the dog started to bark shush Lauren. good lad so you you are sort of familiar so you know what you're getting into but i would always for obviously it's different for a proofread but for a coffee editing i always want to have a read through i'll have a read through first so I get a proper sense of it. I know where the story's going. It also helps, I think, as well. And I keep um, a breakdown of each chapter. So I've got an idea of the timeline in case there are any discrepancies, because it's hard when you just, you know. So I'll do a quick read through. You get a sense of it. You get kind of a good idea of what those crutch words are that they're using at that yes. point. And then I'll do the few, I'll do a few odd changes but then generally after that then go really into the nitty-gritty looking at each paragraph more closely but definitely I, I don't know I definitely need to have a read through the complete thing first and I think you sometimes when you're reading sometimes it I don't know if you are the same but I know especially for when I've done commissioning work for um bullet out and you're sort of reading quickly I find sometimes when I read through the second times, I'll have a slightly different take on something that I've sort of skimmed over. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. Now, but, I mean, I do a lot of editing as well. So I, I always read it. Multi- yeah. You know, there's, there's a slow read and then a fast read yeah. and then a skim read at the end. I tend to do. But then also I'm going backwards and forwards quite a lot. Once I'm familiar with the book, 
I might think, oh yeah, chapter one had something about that, and oh, mm-hmm. oh gosh, I'd forgotten about that, or I hadn't done that quite the yeah. same style as. And it's almost like sort of, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, always think you do. It's like and... Looking for nits, and then you find. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like I really find that sort of doing the chapter breakdown, and then I'll make a, if there's any potential issues that I come across, or if there's something that when I'm doing that first read through, thinking, oh, hang on a minute, does this tie in correctly? So I'll make a note regarding that chapter and then where it might relate back to the next one so that when I'm going through my second one I can relate back to that mm. and it's to make sure things are consistent and obviously keeping a a list of your know, characters and the places and the descriptions that's kind of my first to make sure it's all the same all the way through and there was something else I was going to say and it's gone out of my head oh what was it but yeah it's and knowing then kind of which stripping back because a lot of authors do it and you, you don't realize I think you do it yourself don't you you do have certain words that you use over and over again without realizing that you're using them over and over again you know especially when it comes to characters descriptions in dialogue and um, like eye rolling and things like that it's like everybody's rolling <laughs> their eyes all the time and it's yeah you, you you do pick up on that so I think that first read through is really critical and to get a sense that was it and I also like to keep um a list of any things that come up like threads that they're not part of particularly the main plot but part of the subplots and I always want to make sure that they're all dealt with so I'll keep a list of those and then make a note of when they were dealt with and how they were dealt with um that's I mean everybody works differently you know Mm. but yeah that's how I kind of approach it initially that's fascinating I mean would would authors benefit do you think I mean because many authors listen to this show actually taking a similar approach because i mean okay if you're a plotter you've probably done a lot of this work anyway in your plotting but if you're a pantser like myself you will uh you you know you throw things down on the page and you know you were it's for different people in my case i will probably write a scene and it makes perfect logical sense within the that the context of that chapter but it might not within the rest of the book and i mm-hmm. and i will have to retrospectively go and make these notes if if mm-hmm. I, you know if i were that organized i'm not um but would it help if if authors did do that retrospectively go back through it take the character list take the take the plot points take the subplots and actually figure out for themselves before it reached an editor i think so and i think that's sometimes the difference that you get when when people do just sort of like basically the bang out the words and then just like, right, I'll just send it off somewhere. It's all ready. It's ready for the editing. Or sometimes people are like, well, just skip that. And we'll just like, right, proofread it. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's, you know, it's like, no, you can't do that. You need to take the time over it. Writing a book from the very start, I think writing a book and then get it to the point where it's actually ready for publication. I don't think people appreciate how much time it takes and it's frustrating. And I am I am one of those who I'm often sort of five steps ahead of myself. And if I've got a bee in my bonnet about something, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm going to kind of do it now. But you have to step back and you take that time. And it's worth it in the end. Yeah, it might be frustrating and you might just want to crack on with it, especially if you're self-publishing. Mm. You know, like, I just want to crack on with it and get it done and get the book out there. You need to take that step back and go through. And I think for people who do work like yourself and are the pantsers definitely going back through and maybe doing that and kind of approaching it in that way just to make sure everything does all fit together and then you're going it in the best possible shape so then hopefully 
your copy edit's going to go more smoothly, there aren't going to be more errors come up. And so hopefully it would also cost you a little bit less as yeah. well. Because, um, you know... I think that's a really good point because I'm a, I'm, I'm a member of a Facebook group, which is sort of a self-publishing uh, Facebook group. And the, the amount of people on there who say... I'm looking for an editor, but I haven't got much money. And you think, okay, there's actually a lot you can do as an intelligent human being yeah. yourself. It still needs yeah. an edit. I'm not, you know, I, I get upset when people say, oh, I don't think it needs an edit because my husband yeah. read it or something like yeah. that. <laughs> Next thought's cat read it and they didn't find any typos or anything. Yeah, it's I know. Yeah. But, but I think you, you hit an interesting point. This triggered something in my in my weird brain, which is around something we've been discussing a lot on the show, which is AI. And obviously there are uh, AI tools which are now moving into or have moved into the editing process, things like Grammarly um, mm-hmm. being one. And um, I can't remember the other one we've Pro used. Writing aid. Pro writing aid, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which people now think is going to be foolproof and fix the text without the need for a human to get in there. Yeah. What's your feeling on 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 that situation? Because it does throw up interesting things, like you know, uh, always talks about passive voice. Um, mm-hmm. It's very very conscious of that, and obviously it always challenges everything to change to American spelling if you know you're an English writer. But beyond that, what what's your feeling on 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 the way that that technology is moving into your sphere? I mean, it's well, obviously, I'm slightly biased. Um, you know, well, I found the whole thing quite depressing, quite frankly. Um, even with the whole chat GBT thing, I think it's you need that human element, it's not going to pick up on your writing style, it's not going to pick up on those nuances. I don't think it isn't always, I mean, word spell check isn't even always right. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's you need that human and you need that human. It's, a, it's supposed to be a collaborative process, I think. And when you're working with an editor, they're wanting to get the best out of your text. And it's about that. They've got views on certain things that you've written. Being able to talk those through. You can't do that with a... Yeah, it can, you know, I mean, it's probably really useful for if you're getting your manuscript ready. I don't have a problem with people using those, you know, use them, but don't see it as a substitute mm. for that human contact and what you're actually going to get from a human being looking over it. Maybe use that in the first part, as we are talking about before, getting your manuscript ready to go off for editing in order to save yourself a bit of money. Give yourself some time as well. If I mean, you know, times are really difficult. It's not cheap. Um, to put some money aside for it and use those things, use those tools available to you before the point of going to an editor to get it in that good shape before it goes. But I don't think you can substitute for having another human being and being able to have that discussion around your work because it goes far more, doesn't it, than the technicalities. Editing goes far more than the technicalities. Yeah, you're not just the actual writing. missing commas. That's not yeah. your job. That's, that's yeah. only a tiny part of it, actually. That's what you've got to know if you've got a big... Is the, 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 pro writing aid and Grammarly aren't going to spot if you've got a glaring plot hole. <laughs> or you've got a thread that's just, or somebody's like was driving a silver BMW and then all of a sudden they've got a gold one. Do you know what I mean? It's not going to pick up on those things. You need that human being. But definitely as a tool for when you're first getting your manuscript in shape, use all the tools that you can get. Mm. And another, I think another good resource um, for authors is beta readers who will yes. often do that for free, you know, to get that first feedback and who can often spot these things as well. So 
Yeah, but no, I'm, I'm, the AI thing does. Mm, it's scary times, but it does feel that way. I must admit, yeah. and that's something we discuss a lot because so many people are using it as a shortcut. And um, yeah. but you can tell as a reader, though, you can tell when it hasn't. It might be uh, yes, grammarlyed, but you can tell. Well, yeah, mm. but I think there's a there's a. Here's the the difference: is that we're talking about the three of us put a lot of emphasis on quality and the craft and and delivering mm. the best possible stories it told in the best possible way yeah. for our audiences that's different from somebody who wants to get as much product out there as possible that they can get away with and yeah. that does a functional genre specific job that will sell um with the least yeah. amount of investment yeah and that is what the marketplace is divided in two by i think at the moment i think particularly around amazon a lot of people out there are churning out whatever they can that just about does enough job and there are a lot of readers out there for whom spotting those nuances isn't a big deal mm-hmm. actually and that's yeah. that's the challenge but i think there'll still be enough writers who they, they do care about it and they will want the human intervention oh no keep, I, no keep us no but I, I, I don't i don't deny that but you know the fact is that that is there are a lot of people out there who are just cramming the market with you know machine produced crap yeah like sausages. Think it's like... you can have your artisan <laughs> sausages or your bog standard robinson exactly it's kind of like that it's almost like i don't know i kind of equated to like people who want to lose weight and stuff and various things i mean before i was before i got into this i was a social worker mm. and um often we'd get involved on a sort of child in need basis for families who were having problems with their kids' behaviour. And they would want that. They would expect us to go in and have that kind of quick fix. And it's like, well, we're going to go in, we're going to tell you to do this, this and this, and then you're going to do it once and everything's going to be sorted and you're going to have a perfect angelic child. And it doesn't work like that. It's like it takes consistency, it takes routines, it takes patience. And I think there's a – I don't know why. I don't know if it's because of the internet, because things are so – readily at our fingertips it's almost like it's a quick fix and it's like the same I think people think we're writing and with these things it's a quick thing I can just write I also think there's a bit of a misconception that anyone can write I don't think anyone can write do you know what I mean it's Mm. write a good tell a good story it's not something I don't think I would be able to do and I do wonder if it, it partly also comes down to a bit of that that it's that first that quick fix again and it's quite depressing Mm. Yeah, I think I think there is a societal expectation that you know there must be a quick fix, and mm. you know I fall in that category sometimes with certain things. We like all learning do. Guitar, I keep thinking you know I just join this course and I'm suddenly going to be you know Jeff Beck or something, but it's not going to happen, is it? Never yeah. It takes time, and writing does, and it's about developing your developing your skills. And writing isn't a; it's not an easy process. It takes a lot of hard work. Mm. and that development and i just yeah i mean don't get me wrong i'm not like oh, i'm not i am very impatient you know i am like i said before i'm often five steps ahead of myself if i get a bee in my bonnet about something i'm <laughs> like come on you know it's but there are certain things that don't certain things take time and it's worth putting that time in to have that quality at the end i wonder mm. as well though if part of it is there's so much with all this all this culture war thing and a lot of the humanities degrees getting scrapped. And I know like English degrees are getting scrapped. And mm. I know at my university, it's gone from like a 
an English lit degree to now a creative and professional writing degree. And that's, you know, fair enough. And I get it. It's like trying to aim, like to give people opportunities to get jobs at the end of it, blah, 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 all that kind of thing. But we kind of, because of that, I think, and things are getting diminished and we're kind of losing that focus on good quality products. Mm. It's just creativity make... as well. It's just yeah. creativity. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Yeah. Because you can do a fine art degree and then get a job in the creative industries mm. without, you don't have to have the training in that industry. Well, anyway. it's interesting you say this because, I mean, it's essentially what has happened is that um, in order to justify the fees, you need to, as a, as a university, it yeah. seems, they're now feeling the, the pressure to provide a practical outcome. You do this course, it will open these particular mm-hmm. doors rather than it will set you up with an inquisitive and challenging mind that that has mm-hmm. been based in uh, the great achievements in arts courses of whatever art it might be, whether it's literature, music or, or uh, you know, it could be anything I did ancient history. So it gives you that basis and then you go out and make your way in the world, find your own path, but using mm-hmm the skills and the awareness yeah. that you have gained at university. And I think that they are feeling this pressure now, if they're keeping their courses open at all, yeah. as you as you rightly say, to turn it into something that they can, you know, you can put down, I can do this and then go straight into a job. And that's not yeah. really what the arts was ever about, really. No. And it's not just about the art in itself. It's like you say, isn't it? It's that critical thinking, it's the research, it's those aspects around it. There are skills going beyond kind of, you know, oh yeah I can you know waffle on about a book or whatever but it's the skills that go into that that are beyond and fit to so many different jobs so yeah I just yeah things are pretty messed up at the moment aren't they yeah it is I mean so where I did my um my MA in fine art and my master's they they have stopped doing the master's they've stopped doing PhDs for beyond the current students and you know what's next shut the whole art Mm. school down yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. Well, that would be an idea. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no, the, um, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I did my um, MA in English. Um, graduated last year, um, and during that process, I got rid of the history course, and it was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. And then it was like, and then you could see that change coming in to the English course, and it's like, well, basically, it's either we kind of change to this, or it just gets scrapped. Mm. Wow. It's that's terrifying. That is terrifying because it's one of the great traditions of of the British university system is that, you know, we've had such a strong range of arts related courses. Yeah. And you follow your passion while at university. And and I I, I used it to buy time to figure out what I wanted to do. Exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't have to have a practical outcome. Exactly. Yeah. 18 is far too young to be knowing what you want to do for the rest of your life. I think it's making that decision and uh, there's more emphasis now as well isn't it because you've got to pay for it all um and the amount of debt that you come out with yeah and the problem is is when you start running facilities like this as businesses and it's all about driving profit that's when mm. things start going awry isn't it so, absolutely yeah, totally well let, let's talk about this you know because you, you mentioned that you were a social worker and now an editor so that transition and that change how did that come about um yeah Initially, kind of, when I was younger, I mean, I was born in the 70s, so I'm getting on a bit. Um, oh, so I, were you 70? Yeah, 1970. Oh, I was 71. Yeah, at the very beginning. <laughs> 76. 
Um, it was it was a different time then, wasn't it? Really, and I think being from kind of a, a working class background, single parent family in the north of England, um, it was that you you didn't really go to university. People like me didn't really go to university, and um, there was always a an expectation. I think that would leave school if I got some qualifications, that'd be great. Um, and then I'd go on to be secretary or something like that. But throughout my life, my mum's a big reader, and that's something I got from her. And I've always loved reading. And a treat for me on a Saturday would be like we'd go to the library and get to pick some books. I had um, asthma as a kid, and if I had to go and get any tests done, like blood tests, which I was always terrified of, it was the bribery was like, well, you can go and get a book afterwards. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, all right, then. that's okay then. That's brilliant. And um. It was only when I was a, a teenager and somebody who was older than me was finishing, was doing their GCSEs and had gone to look around the local sixth form college and I went with them. And then it was then I discovered I got the booklet with all the A-levels in it and it was like, oh, I could do an English A-level. Because I absolutely loved it at school, really. I used to just write reams and reams, my essays. I'd be like, oh, I don't know what to write. And then I'd come back and hand this big tome, like, there you go. <laughs> um so I wanted to do, and then it was like, right, I'm going to go and I'm going to do an English lit degree. And that's what I wanted to do. But then I think as time went on, I did my A-levels. And then it was a case of a bit like kind of what we're going back to, I suppose. What do I do with this English degree? It was seen to me that thought of the advice that you got was all you could do was go into teaching. Publishing mm. wasn't really an option at that point. You know, it was it was basically, it was a big five publishers, wasn't it? That was it. It was, you know, yeah. very much based and all on in London stuff. as well. All in London. Um, so I decided, well, I don't, I really don't want to be a teacher. So I ended up doing something totally different. And I did sociology and psychology. Um, got a job after that as a support worker for young adults with autism. And then I went back and did my social work training part time. And pretty much got a job straight away as a social worker with the local authority did that for 12 years part of that throughout those 12 years I started to feel a bit dodgy um I've just had some really weird symptoms and feeling unwell so backwards and forwards to the doctor him basically saying oh you're it's probably stress and anxiety because of your job, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, I don't really think it is. Turns out I had um, ME CFS. So it was like, oh, right, okay. So I got the diagnosis and then the local authority basically dismissed me on medical grounds. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Was, um, yeah, which was quite nice of them. Um and so it was at that point, uh, there was a period of time where I had to focus on obviously getting myself better. I was really quite ill at that point um, and sort of seeing specialists. And then obviously from that, there, there was no way I, I wasn't going to be able to do social work again. Quite frankly, by that point, I didn't really want to. Mm. Um, and so reading had always been a thing throughout my life. It was still something I really, really loved. Um, so I started writing a few book reviews. And then thought, well, might as well train as a proofreader. So I did my proofreading course through the PTC. Mm. And it kind of went from there, really. And yeah, so it's kind of like I've come full circle. Yeah. And then went on and did my MA in English. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not that dissimilar to my story because I uh, did my A-levels. I did art A-level, loved it. Mm-hmm. 
But then I did a degree in economics and politics. Of course. Because I didn't want to be a teacher because I was told yes. the same thing. You do an art yeah. degree. You could be a graphic designer in London or you could be a teacher. Yeah. yeah. So I did economics and politics. I, uh, I actually did get into publishing, but it was academic publishing. Loved it. Mm-hmm. But then did a part-time art degree in my um, late 30s, early 40s. <laughs> and then a master's in fine art. So, yes, Brilliant. very similar. That sort of going back to what your real passion is and, so, yeah. and almost sticking your finger up at the people who used to say, nah, <laughs> don't do it. Yes, definitely. I know doing the MA was quite a, because I was like, God, you know, I mean, did my degree when I was in, obviously, late teens, early 20s. Didn't mm. do particularly well. Came out with a 2-2. Now I think, actually, probably because it wasn't really the right degree for me. Mm. And I did like going out and getting lashed as well, let's face it. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? And I was also working as well at the time. I was working in a bar, so there was all those kind of things. And I was like, oh, it was a bit of a you know rubbish 2-2. So when I went back thinking, God, I'm in my 40s, my brain cells aren't quite what they used to be. Um, yeah, and came out and did it and I got a distinction. So yeah. Fantastic. Like, no, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because, again, very similar. I did economics and politics, struggled with it. I didn't feel passionately about it at all. And I got a low 2-1. I scraped a 2-1, but I got a distinction in all the art stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's. I mean, I, I look at back at my BA and I think it was wasted on me in many ways because I was doing mm-hmm. everything but the work. You know, I was doing yeah. radio the whole time. I was doing student radio and that was my passion. But if I hadn't mm-hmm. been there, I wouldn't have discovered that passion and gone into mm-hmm. this game. So uh, in that in that regard, yeah, the academic side of it, and I, I, you know, got a decent degree, but God knows how. I mean, you know, I think it was one of those things where the stars aligned every time I sat down on a paper and it was yeah, the one thing I'd revised, you know. Subject, didn't you? You did, you did you do? passion for the subject. Uh, some of it. I didn't much like the Greeks. I was into the Romans. <laughs> Romans, oh, I understood. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get the Greeks at all. But uh, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, looking at your website, so the, you've taken a lot of courses. There's the academic ones, but then there's the ones that are for your profession in, in terms of editing. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm fascinated by the things that you learn through those courses and the skills that you develop and it it, because I haven't got that sort of brain to sort of stick at anything for very long with an ADD that I have um it always it always strikes me that that it's quite it's such an intense thing being a proofreader and indeed a copy editor and getting codified as such and passing those courses and getting that that those qualifications um how challenging is it is it is it is it laser focused and and you know that sort of thing it is challenging it's you know having that kind of level of concentration for and knowing when that's waning and when you need to step back a little bit Mm. um what what i think what's really difficult as well is because the courses are all well the ones that i've done i think there are some kind of in-person ones but they're all kind of that distance learning thing where it's all very removed Partly for me, I did the proofreading and then it was quite a while before I actually ventured into doing the copy editing course. Um, I wanted to get that grounding, I think, first, get a good grounding in the proofreading stuff. Plus then I went on and did my MA as well in the middle of it. So it's, <laughs> but I really, I, I really like learning. Um, but I also think part of it as well is I think Sorry, I'm not even answering the question, am I? I'm just no, waffling no, no, on about my own thing are. here. Yeah, because I haven't got any qualifications in editing. It's uh, all experience. 
So and I just haven't. I have, it's almost like I haven't got round to doing any more than I haven't wanted to. I just haven't got round to it. So I, I am interested yeah. in what they're like. They are the the copy editing courses were well. The proofreading one was more like oof, gosh, than what I kind of expected. I mean, I've never heard of a bloody widow or an orphan before. This, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like it was like what you know. It it was quite intense. Um, the PTC one was really quite intense. And at one point I was thinking, bloody hell, am I even going to pass this? But, but I did, you know. Um, so, and it was a while, I think, because I, I did want to get that firm ground in and build up that experience in the proofreading before I personally felt ready to go into the copy editing. And I think part of that, and like I say, I do like learning. I like to be using my brain. I think part of it as well is when, obviously, going through all that stuff with my ME and the job I mean social work is so intense and it's really I don't know it's probably different in different local authorities yeah but it was very much a you have regular supervision your supervision was often you're so short-staffed your caseload is just absolutely ridiculous when you go into supervision I always found that rather than it being a supportive process it was more of a because the managers are getting flack from their managers mm-hmm. It was more about beating you with a stick about what you hadn't managed to get around and got done. So I think that, and then I think being dismissed from my job, having the ME, it kind of changed like who I thought I was completely. Mm. And with that, there was a huge drop in self-confidence. Yeah. And I think part of the courses for me as well is that kind of self-validation to me to try and deal with the imposter syndrome in some way. And it's that mm. kind of, I've got to feel like I've got to validate myself. So that's partly why I think the jumping on the course is kind of rightly or wrongly. But at the same time, I do like the learning process and I've learned so much from them. And they're definitely worth doing. The CIEP ones are really, really good. Mm. And um, the um, tutor that I had for that, she was dead supportive. Uh, but it is challenging doing it distance learning. It's not the same as having somebody who you can speak to and get that feedback on. It's yeah, yeah, it's tough. I'm I'm intrigued to know from from you know perspective of when you're doing the editing, whether it's proofreading or copy editing in particular, where where do you get the pleasure from it? What's the thing uh, that, that makes you... What a question. No, I mean... No, uh, it's a good question. No, I don't mean to be rude about that uh, or sound rude, but I'm actually interest, intrigued. When when are the magic moments for you? Oh, my God. Do you know, it's not something I've really kind of sat and thought about. It's really weird because there isn't anything kind of specific, but yesterday I came home. Um, in the past few months, I've rented, like, a little office space um, to get out from being stuck in the back bedroom. And um, I was there, I was there yesterday, sort of by myself. It's really quiet. There were people kind of in and out and stuff, but it was really quiet. I was getting stuck into this copy edit. And I, I don't think I can really put a, but I came home and there's my husband. And I was, I was saying to him, funny, we had this conversation yesterday. And I was saying, do you know what? I was sat there today and I'm doing my job. And I was thinking to myself, do you know what? I really love this. And I'm so lucky and I just love it. I'm loving, I love my work. I love my little, my little office space, all of those things. And, but I, I don't know if I can actually pinpoint exactly what it is, but I'm going to, do you know, I'm going to have to think about that. And, uh, yeah. Well, that, uh, well, that's, I, I, I have a certain, 
you know, there's a certain feeling of satisfaction when I come up with a question that, that someone doesn't, you know, have a, a rote answer for, which is always, you know, the challenge of when I was doing a, the broadcasting thing, you know, is trying to find something fresh when you've, you know, mm-hmm. I always give that example of when I was talking to Gary Newman for an hour and um, having to uh, figure out things that given I hadn't done any research before I got the interview, um, trying to find things that he hadn't been asked before. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, I like that question because um, I get moments when I think I love this job and it's usually yeah. when the author responds with something like, I never thought of that. I love it when they say mm. that, when they say, you've asked a great question about my book and I never thought of that. Or mm. when they, when they thank you at the end and it, it's genuine. Yeah. You know, I yeah. had, I edited a book about Welsh ghosts most recently and the author who's very intellectual, very well qualified, you know, I was a little bit sort of nervous working with her. Yeah. She was so good. <laughs> and then she said, I genuinely think you've made a difference to the manuscript. And I thought, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that definitely does when you get feedback like that. But it's that weird thing, yes, it's that I think I related it because it happened kind of yesterday. It was just that that real sense of like, do you know what? I feel really content and I'm really enjoying this and I feel really happy about it and I'm just really, really lucky. But yeah, I can't, I can't, and it sounds stupid, but I, I can't pinpoint what it is about it. That made that's me feel a priceless like that. feeling. Yeah. Because so few people, I, I get the impression in this world at the moment, so few people get that feeling of contentment. You're doing even, a job even, that you love. Even for yeah. a moment. Because and it was interesting because I was reading a post from a, an old colleague of mine who has now set himself up as he's developing a uh, sort of uh, I wouldn't say it was psychotherapy necessarily, but you know he's sort of support for people, blokes basically who feel uh, in their forties or whatever that yeah. what the hell's life about. And I've been through that process, and he was sort of yeah. saying that actually the point where it worked for him was because he was in the BBC rat race like I was desperately trying to uh, to get on, be ambitious uh, when the rules were changing so that you couldn't and, you know, that sort of thing. You couldn't control it. And then when he let go and just decided that I'm going to do things on my own terms, I'm not going to give a toss what anyone else thinks, I can, uh, you know, then he found contentment doing that. And that was his message. Essentially, that's what I think he's going to be trying to uh, encourage people to, to feel, mm. you know, it's just do things on your own terms. Mm. And I think that's very valuable. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there seeking that. So to have that feeling must be fantastic. It was lovely. And I came home and I was just like in a really good mood, really happy. <laughs> and just like, you know what? And I was saying to her, I was, I was in a, it was like, you know, I was just saying, I really love my job. I love my little office space. And then I come home and you're here and that's great. And we've got our lovely little dog and the house needs loads of work doing to it. But you know what? Everything's pretty bloody good. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's a lovely, lovely point at which to to lob in the hand, oh, the random question. The, the hand <laughs> grenade that is Rebecca's random question, if we don't mind. So um, I'm just going to do the voice. <clears throat> I apologise in advance for this one. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Dear. Rebecca's random question. Who is the most embarrassing person you have fancied in your life? So, what you know, you're most embarrassed about fancying. Oh, my God. Oh God, that is a horror one. Well, yeah. people know what mine is. People know who yours is. Do they? Who's mine? Gordon Brown, surely. That was just a dream. I dreamt I kissed Gordon Brown. I didn't. I didn't actually not particularly fancy him, but I have got. Yeah, but hang on a second. Hang on a second. We were watching the coronation the other day, and all those ex prime ministers were walking in one by one with John Major at the front. Then it was Tony Blair talking to you know rather awkwardly with Gordon Brown, and you swooned. 
You swooned when Gordon Brown hoved into view. Because it was a vivid dream. And, and it was a really good And kisser. it wasn't David Cameron exciting. It certainly wasn't Liz Truss. No. I mean, God help us. Um, no. It was a vivid... How, or we'll take this offline. I don't <laughs> want to find out how vivid this was. It how, was a kiss, but it was a vivid dream. Anyway. Right. So who's yours in Adrian? Uh, Katie Hopkins. Oh, my God. And I just find uh, there's something so awful about her that, you know, that... I'm I'm drawn. Um, I don't know. I, it's just on every level, she repulses me. And then she's gone. We do have a cardboard cutout of Katie Hopkins for my birthday <laughs> a couple of years ago. For my fiftieth, Katie Hopkins giant cardboard cutout. Appeared. Oh. For people who in the United States who don't know Katie, well, actually, probably do because she's been touring around the United yeah. States with all her, uh, you know, bile and right wing bigotry mm. and all that stuff. Um, but she went to uh, the same university we did. I mean some years apart but there were lots and lots of women of that ilk at Exeter University trust me and um I found a good one in, uh, but not not a Katie Hopkins um mm-hmm. version but uh, something I don't know what it is it's like watching a car wreck but you just can't keep your eyes off it it's that kind of there's a fine line between love and hate and the, yeah. the boundaries can be blurred I, oh. I suppose I love a challenge um you know <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, that that that, that is my. Well, I, I, we to, this is a terrible thing to phrase, and I, I probably will have to change the uh, delineation on the on the podcast in terms of, you know, its uh, adult rating. But we used to have a phrase at, at work where people used to talk about who their shame shag was, who would they, mm-hmm. who was the awful person they would be prepared to sleep with, the shame shag, and that was mine. Well, I've I've got also got a topical one from my childhood. Very topical. So I'm sure there's a lot of people of my generation who fancied Philip Schofield when he was in the, 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 the cupboard. The room cupboard with God and the girlfriend. Because <laughs> he was nice and he was he was he had sparkly eyes and he was he was he was a sort of boy going, next door. To we're him. going really dark now. I mean, this is you know, and, and, and as, as yet we haven't found out. Uh, Abby, you've had some time to think about this. Have you got one? Right. Um, oh God, what's his name? It'd probably be um, Matthew Wright. Oh, he used right, to do the, the right, right stuff. stuff yeah. yeah, just because I used to like his. Um, I don't know where it is. It, it, I think it was the way he's. This is going to sound really awful. The way he'd be sometimes with the people who'd phone in, and he wouldn't really care, and he would just like if they were spouting absolute nonsense or he disagreed with it, he'd just be straight down the line and say, and then like right bye, put you off kind of thing. <laughs> and I think it's that kind of yeah. So so him for some yeah, I, yeah. I've had the the, the, the dubious pleasure of meeting him, and it was a very famous occurrence because he was at the time he was at the sun and he was their mm. sort of showbiz gossip guy and he's again somebody also went to exeter funnily enough um at, and i was in an exeter alumni media event at itn in the when it was a new building in gray's inn road and they had a panel which they'd invited another person who had been exeter judith miller married to david miller who'd just been cuckolded mm. With Antonio, whatever her name was, and toe mm. sucking and all that stuff. That went on. And so Matthew Wright was in the audience, and the, the panel started taking questions, and they were talking about uh, what is what is in the public interest. Was the the debate? You know, what? How far are the press allowed to go and in, intrude into people's private lives? Mm-hmm. What do they have a right to know? And he said, and again, I'm going to have to push the thing to eighteen on this. He said. 
Well, I think if a politician, Tory politician, is nobbing some bird, we have a right to know about it, at which point Judith Meller got up, stormed out. Uh, and that was Matthew Wright. Oh, dear. It, at his, mm -hmm. his tabloid finest, if you wanted to put it that way. So I see where you're coming with this. But there is a certain yeah. devilish it's... quality to Matthew Wright, twinkle yeah. behind the eyes. There's a devilish yeah. quality to Gordon Brown. And certainly to Katie Hopkins. Mm. <laughs> so we've lied to three people. That's brilliant. <laughs> I don't get the... Uh, yeah. Not really. <laughs> no, we haven't, no. But Yeah, it is. It's so far removed from what I would normally kind of go for. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely that. That I'm not going to say it because we'll have to edit it out. Then. Well... What you were uh, talking about earlier with Kate Hopkins and who would be your... Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry you used no, that phrase. Just... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... When look, I was a kid, um... it was George Michael. Ah. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of people I think loads of young girls liked George Michael, though, didn't they? I had quite a few crushes on tennis players like Jimmy Connors and oh the French one, Henri Leconte. Oh, he was lovely. <laughs> he still has a certain quality because he's in Wimbledon. He does the uh, the comedy tennis they do sometimes. These old veterans come out and start playing ridiculous stunts and things. Um, he's he's got a certain mm. certain je ne sais quoi still. And he could play tennis. I mean, what what, what more do you want in a man? I have to Google him. I don't know who he is. Henri Leconte, yeah, uh, yeah he was, um, yeah, he, he was. He wasn't like a top, top tennis player. No, he, he, but he, he was top 10. He would go to Wimbledon and he was, being French, his voice, oh, mm, yeah. Guy oh, yeah, and he yeah. was good looking and uh, funny and nice and everything. Yeah, he always played played for laughs and uh, he still does. So uh, if you ever get to see him with, um, I'm trying to remember who, who the, uh, Mansour Barami, I think his name is, uh, who's an Iranian player. He's in his seventies now, and he's the most incredible comedy doubles player ever. The stunts that they can pull out and the shots, you know, between the legs and all that stuff, while smoking a cigar on the Wimbledon centre court, it's just they ha they are hilarious together. So uh, well worth checking out. Anyway, at this point, we ought to draw things to a close. Abby, where can people find you uh, online? Oh. Apart from Sunderland. <laughs> Well, you can find me. Yeah, I'm usually in Sunderland. If I'm not in Sunderland, I'm probably in Hull. Um, um, AbbeyEditorial.com. Fantastic. Abbey, A-double-B-I-E-Abbey-Editorial.com. Uh, yeah. Very good point. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We've covered a lot of topics. Uh, yeah, it's quite deep. We always do, Some though. of which, we're not, I'm sure of us, none of us were expecting, but um, that's the nature of this show. Not so, just commas. No. <laughs> no. Well, that's Thank a bit you so isn't it? Let's face it. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. As we say, almost every week we could have spoken for hours, and in fact, we did. Yes, and I—I uh, I, um, I feel like we should record the I, after show. I, I corresponded with Abby afterwards, and I said because she said, "Oh, I hope it was okay." And I said, "Absolutely, it was a brilliant interview, and we always regard it as a good sign if we talk for longer than the podcast after we finish, which we yeah. did." Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I sense we'll be, you know, looking for opportunities to work with Abby as well as an editor. I've already told her that. I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." She came. I mean, you know, we, we felt um, a kindred spirit there in many respects so uh thank you so much and our guest next week is it's kim booth kim is a former detective yes a detective inspector in fact and is now a crime author so, and uh you know that the career history kim's career history is is fascinating it's covered all areas of policing so all oh, right excellent um now there are many um ex-coppers 
writing books yeah, now. Yeah, but and but each one has a different absolutely story to tell. So. They do, they do, and uh, yeah, that's uh, it's 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 a really welcome thing. So we're looking forward to speaking to Kim next week. As far as this week goes, it's half term. It is half term, so we're doing lots of things like gardening, playing tennis. Um... Well, it's funny you say we're doing the gardening. We're not doing it. Your youngest has been out there hacking the bushes down. I know. He's, he's done a really good job, actually, loving, that bit. I told you, yeah, he's loving it. His topiary out there was really, really good. He couldn't reach the top, though. No, I know. It's where the, where ha- the pigeons are hiding. There's a couple of pigeons who live in. Well, I don't know been, what we're going to do about that. You know, creating guano. Well, my car is our, almost white now. It is, yeah. <laughs> Your black car is almost white. And uh, Middle Son wants to do some um, of the more sort of creative artistic gardening. He wants to turn it into a Chelsea flower show, he doesn't does. he? He does. And I, I love that because gardening is in my genes for sure because my, my grandma was a mega, mega keen gardener. She She's passionate. Well, I'm going to challenge him to create me uh, a beautiful herb garden or prop <gasps> love plant. Love a herb garden. Because, you know, for the... Uh, Master Chef preparation. Well, just for uh, din- dinner anyway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that, that's that's his first uh, challenge. We'll take him to a gardening centre or something at some point this week. Um, but one of the problems is, you know, we're running the business and we've got various set piece things that we've got to do this week. We're hoping to meet up with one of our far flung authors potentially. Yes, Lewis. Week. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, in amongst that, we also want to give the kids something of a holiday. Well. If we can. On Tuesday, we have a very special treat for them. They know about it. We're taking them to a cat cafe in Eccleshaw, which is about five miles away from here. Do you know how many cats they have at the cat cafe? I've counted about five. For how many? Yeah, I don't know. I was like, I thought you might know. Um, well, I've seen photos of five it's at, at once. Five. Yeah, it's going to be uh, quite an experience. So I'm going to take lots of photos. This is very exciting because you love cats, as we know. No. And the, one of the cats is very similar looking to um, our lovely Hobet cat. Yeah, yeah. So I've booked an hour and a half slot. You get a drink fr- thrown in with the price, but you can obviously order more as well. But... It's a lovely idea. <laughs> you uh, can't wait, can you? Well, it's supposed to make you relax, but I, I think it might get my hackles up. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Um, that's going to be interesting. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're still, uh, you know, marketing heavily, uh, the bad neighbor, but we've got, um, you know, plans to drop some of our prices just for crime reading month. So take it, take a look at our website as that happens. Yeah. So all will be, all will be revealed in the next week. And take a look at the show notes because I went to a lot of trouble to make creating them. So, um, and see how it's spelled. Yeah. And any feedback on that would be wonderful. (laughs) In fact, any feedback is always welcome here at the Hobcast Book Show. We're enormously grateful for every time you, you listen in and share uh, our experience of running Hobeck Books. If you want to find out more about Hobeck, then go to our website, www.hobeck.net. Yes. Which I've tried to change this week and put a blog up, but it wouldn't let me because of new Facebook rules. So I have to go and fiddle around and do some coding to sort it out. It wouldn't let you put a blog up? No. That's got nothing to do with Facebook. No, I was going to write something about the, the podcast show. Um, yeah, it, it it just it got stuck, and it just said, "Look, no, you can't do it. Got to you've got to comply with Facebook's new rules and put in some coding and all this malarkey." And I couldn't figure it out. So I think that's one for you for num- number three, son, to look at. Okay. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't make head and a tail of what they were trying to suggest I had to do. Uh, but anyway, the website is well worth a look, as indeed is our sister company, Arch Publishing Services, which is archpub.net. And uh, we will be with you again next week. 
We will indeed. So my, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We'd like to wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.